Please join me in prayer. By the breath of your spirit, inspire us that in the hearing of your word, we may be filled with new understanding and fresh desire to please you in all we do for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our first reading for the day comes from Psalms 36, verses 5 through 10. Holy One, throughout the very heavens is your faithful love, your faithfulness beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the eternal mountains. Your, judgment are like the, your judgments are like the mighty deep. You save humankind and animal kind alike, faithful one. How precious is your faithful love, O God. All the women born take shelter in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Extend your faithful love to those who know you and your, heart, your justice to the upright of heart. This is the word of God. I'm so grateful for Dr. Gaffney's translation of these texts. They are a fresh hearing and one that um, allows us, I think, to hear hear the text of Scripture in new, uh, profound, and liberating ways. And so, um, with gratitude for her work, we continue reading from uh, Dr. Gaffney's translation of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Let us listen for the Word of God. Now, look to your own call, siblings. Not many of you were wise by mortal standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were high-born. Rather, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what is insignificant in the world and what is despised, God chose to eradicate what is, so that no mortal can boast in the presence of God. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let she or he who boasts, boasts in the Messiah. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. We don't talk about Bruno. In case you have not, I was going to sing it, I just can't, it wouldn't be very good. In, in case any of you have not yet seen Disney's new animated film, Encanto, I'll do my best to avoid big spoilers tonight, but you should absolutely go and watch this movie after the service. Um, if you are new to the PSC this year, you may not know yet that I will often preach through Disney movies because that's what's playing at my house. And as it turns out, most of them are pretty, pretty good, <laughs> even for adults. Um, Encanto may be a new favorite of mine. I need to watch it again to kind of test that out, but it is definitely up there. Uh, it is a story about a refugee family in Colombia, the Madrigals, who receive a magical gift that stays with them generation to generation. Every member of the family has some unique magical powers with which the whole family serves as kind of benefactors of their village. Um, and the main character of this movie is a young girl named Mirabelle. And the movie opens in anticipation, for Mirabelle has not yet received her gift and everybody is waiting to learn what it will be. But when the time comes to reveal Mirabelle's gift, everyone, most of all Mirabelle herself, is disappointed 
when the magic door shuts and no gift has been given. It is inexplicable, it is embarrassing, it is unprecedented. For three generations, everyone in this family has received their gift, but not Mirabelle. Mostly, the rest of the family do their best to make sure that this young girl knows that she matters. But in a family whose identity is so centered in magical gifts, you can imagine that having no magic feels, well, a bit like you don't exist. Now, there is one other character who, like Mirabelle in this family, kind of doesn't exist. Remember, we don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> Unlike Mirabelle, though, Bruno does have a gift. He can see the future. And at least once, what Bruno sees is bleak, growing cracks in the family home, threatening its foundation, threatening the magic. Now, there is nothing in this moment that is obvious in the present to justify Bruno's vision. Everything, save Mirabelle, seems perfect, and no one wants to consider the possibility of such a disaster, and so the family simply denies it. They deny the reality of Bruno's giftedness, and they become skeptical of his intentions and his place in La Familia Madrigal. And so Bruno leaves, and from that point on, the Madrigals don't talk about Bruno. The church in Corinth, it would seem, is kind of like La Familia Madrigal, but in reverse. Paul writes to this congregation, not many of you were wise, not many powerful, not many highborn. So there are some in the church, it seems, who are privileged in these ways. They're gifted or hashtag blessed according to worldly standards, but mostly, it seems, the church consists of the lowly, the weak despised, insignificant. The Greek text actually includes a phrase that Gaffney leaves out of her translation. Um, Paul says, that which is not, or more clearly we might translate it, what doesn't even exist. And then Paul turns on that phrase to make an absurd claim that these things, so insignificant as to not even exist, these are what and whom God chooses to shame the wise and powerful of this world, what God chooses to eradicate or to nullify what is. And Paul's evidence for this claim, we don't see it in the bit of the text we read tonight, but everything surrounding it points to this. Paul's evidence for the claim, and really the center of his claim, that God chooses the weak to shame the strong, is the cross of Jesus, a crucified Messiah, the Savior of the world, the liberator of the oppressed? Foolishness, Paul says, to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Now it is worth noting that Paul's language often can be a little bit confounding, but I think the season of epiphany that we are in is a season of revealing, and that alone can help us to understand what Paul is thinking here. See, for the apostle, there are two realities, or there are two worlds. There is the world as it is. We might call that the dominant reality. And then there is the world that God is bringing into existence. 
And we might call that the subversive reality, which is revealed most fully in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. In the world as it is, people's value is tied to some variable factor. Maybe it is their wealth or gender or appearance, ethnicity, age, marital status, citizenship. The the list could probably go on and on. In the world that God is bringing into existence, all of those distinctions are nullified. Value is not measured by monetary wealth. It's, it's not tied to the accidents of our birth, but it is universal. It has to do with our essence. Everyone is a child of God and equally valuable, and any attempt to value or devalue people based on the accidents of their birth or on the accumulations of their life are always an affront to the divine act of creation. So in the grace of redeeming creation, God chooses those who suffer the most harm within and from the world as it is. Those who might be labeled weak, insignificant, despicable. God chooses to tear down the foundations and make way for a new divine creation to be birthed. If there can be such a thing as a singular point of the church, this is it. The whole point of there being a church of Jesus Christ is that it embody the reality that God in Christ brings into existence and that it does so within and against the world as it is. This is not to say that the church is against the world, it's not. But the church stands against the corruption of this world, what has become the dominant reality within God's good creation. God chooses what is, uh, God chooses what is not, rather, in order to bring to nothing what is. Just over 60 years ago, a black preacher from right down the street in Atlanta took up the mantle as this nation's greatest civil rights leader. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew well the two worlds of this text. He knew the world as it is, and he knew the world that God was bringing into existence. And he knew the task of the church to gather the outcast of this world, the weak, despised, and insignificant, and assert their existence and their value against the corrupt reality which would try so hard to deny and destroy it. Human beings were stolen, enslaved, and brought against their will to build a nation which would pretend to be free, all while ignoring the glaring and growing cracks in its majestic facade. Emancipation came eventually, and while it was a victory, it turned out to be just kind of a patching of the cracks. Citizenship and the technical right to vote, while victories, turned out to be more patching of the cracks. And Dr. King saw the cracks through all of their patchwork. He drew our attention to them. He insisted that they were a fundamental threat to our life together and to our magic. But we loved our magical illusion. And so we hated him. It is easy for us to think of Dr. King's vision through the rose-colored glasses of retrospect as if it were simply about black and white kids holding hands and laughing together. But we must never forget how despised Dr. King was while he lived and how relatively few people 
despised the idea of black and white children playing together. That is not what people despised about Dr. King. What we despised about Dr. King, I think, is what we fear. That his vision of the world that God brings into existence is actually true. And that his and others' persistence in embodying that vision will finally require the eradication of the world as it is. And for many of us, myself included, the world as it is is quite comfy. We would rather rest in our exceptionalism than concern ourselves with the cracks in our collective foundation. And so, like the Madrigals, we don't talk about Martin, not the real Martin. But Martin has shown us the truth, whether we choose to look at it or not. If there is a Christ figure in this nation's history, it could be no other. Once weak, insignificant, and despised simply because of the pigmentation in his skin, God chose Martin, a black preacher from the Fourth Ward, to shame our southern governors and American presidents, our police chiefs and prosecutors, to shame the FBI and the CIA for the world they created, powerful as it may seem, cannot hold a candle to the good creation of God, embodied in the life, witness, and death of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Just as powerfully, perhaps even more powerfully than his life, King's martyrdom, his death, like that of Christ his Messiah, exposes the cracks in our house. It exposes the fallacy of any earthly sovereignty. It exposes the fallacy of white supremacy, the fallacy that we could simply change some laws and hearts would follow. It is to our shame that we crucify the Messiah. And who could deny that we continue to do so even to this day? But it is to our glory that God uses even such foolishness to reveal her divine wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption has come among us in the lowliest form so that none can boast about the houses we've built. Wisdom, beloveds, dwells in the house built at creation and again at Calvary. Wisdom lives only by the law of love. Wisdom dies to the world as it is, that all this divinely created world may finally live together in the eternity that God brings into existence. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, that we reach creation's goal. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.